Please be seated. Let's pray as we come to these words now. Father, we again thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you for what we see in these verses of our Lord Jesus and his amazing sacrifice and his wonderful mercy. And we pray that as I preach on these things tonight, that these things would be evident to all those gathered here, that we would see more of Christ, and love him more, and worship him uh, for who he is and all that he has done for us. Uh, glorify Christ, we pray, this time. We ask it in his strong and precious name. Amen. Well, this evening we come to Luke's account of the crucifixion of Jesus, and it'd be very helpful if you could please have tonight's passage open in front of you. We're in Luke chapter 23, and verses 26 to B. And the verses to which we turn this evening, uh, this really is what Luke's story has been leading up to all along, even as far back as chapter 9 and verse 51. Luke told us at that moment that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And on that journey to Jerusalem, which takes up about 10 or 11 chapters of Luke's gospel, Jesus repeatedly told his disciples why it was that he was so intent on going to Jerusalem. So, for example, in chapter 18, Jesus had said to his disciples back then, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And now those words of Jesus are in the process of coming true, as indeed he is taken away to be crucified. And as we look at Luke's account of the crucifixion this evening, I'd like us to notice really three main things that unavoidably confront us as we reflect on this passage. First of all, see this. See Christ's humiliation in his awful suffering. See Christ's humiliation in his awful suffering. And in these words, the first glimpse of the dreadful extent of Christ's humiliation and his suffering is in this little incident that Luke records for us there in verse 26. We're told that as Jesus was led away by the Roman soldiers, uh, taken outside the city to Golgotha, the place called the Skull, in order to be crucified there. En route, the Roman soldiers seized a man called Simon from the region of Cyrene. And Simon, we're told, was traveling towards Jerusalem from out in the countryside. Most likely, he's on his way to Jerusalem in order to take part in the Passover celebrations there. And as he's making this journey to Jerusalem, he meets this crowd of people coming out of Jerusalem. And at the front of the crowd, there is Jesus uh, carrying his cross. 
And the Roman soldiers, Luke tells us, uh, seized this man Simon and made him carry the cross for Jesus. Now, in some ways, it is just a very small detail, uh, isn't it, compared to everything else that is going on. But it serves to underline, doesn't it, the, the physical suffering that Jesus has already been through, even before being crucified. One commentator writes, Consider what Jesus had already endured within the last 15 hours. The tense atmosphere of the upper room, the betrayal by Judas, the agonies of Gethsemane, the desertion by his disciples, the torture of a totally hypocritical trial before the Sanhedrin, the mockery in the palace of Caiaphas, the denial by his most prominent disciple, the trial before an unjust judge, the pronunciation of the death sentence upon him, the terrible ordeal of being scourged, and the abuse by the soldiers. Humanly speaking, is it not a wonder that he was able to carry the cross any distance at all? And then we also see the humiliation of Christ in the manner of his death. Luke tells us two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And so Jesus is put to death in the most barbaric way imaginable, undergoing the agony of crucifixion. One Roman writer who lived shortly before Jesus um, was crucified uh, described crucifixion as, as follows. A most cruel and disgusting punishment. The very mention of the cross should be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. It's the method of, of execution that the Romans reserved for the very worst of criminals. And that fact is then underlined by the fact that Jesus was put to death alongside two criminals, one on each side of him. He's counted as a criminal and dies the death of the worst of criminals. And I also see Christ's humiliation in the way in which he was mocked and reviled by numerous people, even whilst he was hanging on the cross. Luke records the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. All these different people in different ways, uh, heaping scorn upon him as he suffers. 
And yet, of course, the greatest humiliation and the greatest suffering that Jesus experienced was not any of those three things that we've mentioned so far, not the the physical exhaustion that prevented him from carrying his cross, nor the abuse of these different people around him, nor even the torture of crucifixion itself. But rather, the greatest suffering of Christ was that on the cross, uh, he underwent the curse of God for his people's sin. William Hendrickson writes, It has been said that only the damned in hell know what Jesus suffered when he died on the cross. In a sense, this is true, for they too suffer eternal death. One should add, however, that they have never been in heaven. The Son of God, on the other hand, descended from the regions of infinite delight in the closest possible fellowship with his Father to the abysmal depths of hell. On the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See Christ's humiliation in his awful suffering, every aspect of it. And if you are a Christian, remember that out of gracious love he went there for you, taking what you deserve for your sin in order to free you from it. Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See Christ's humiliation in his awful suffering. And then as well as that, also notice this, see God's sovereignty in the fulfillment of prophecy. See God's sovereignty in the fulfillment of prophecy. And to the untrained eye, this horrific humiliation of Christ in his awful suffering could be wrongly understood as a sign that Jesus has lost. He's been beaten by his enemies. It's all gone wrong. It's all out of control. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth, could it? Now, we've already made note of that in that Jesus, as we saw earlier on in Luke's gospel, had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And in going there repeatedly, he had told his disciples that he was going there in order to die at the hands of his enemies. And so we know, don't we, that Jesus knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. And yet he went there willingly. And Luke, as he writes this account of the crucifixion, emphasizes the fact that even in these horrific circumstances of the death of Christ, still God is in control. And his perfect plan to save people is, is coming together. And the way that Luke does that is by showing to us the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the events of the crucifixion. Now, there are, it has to be said, literally dozens of Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in the circumstances of Christ's death. And so we could spend a very long time this evening going through, going through all of those prophecies of the Old Testament and see how they find their perfect fulfillment in even the precise details of Christ's death. But in these particular verses, Luke points us to three particular prophecies which were fulfilled in the crucifixion. He gives just a, a small sample of fulfilled prophecy in the death of Christ. Now, the first of these three we've briefly alluded to already in the fact that Jesus was put to death alongside two criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And maybe that causes you to think back to the upper room 
and what Jesus had said to his disciples back in chapter 22, verse 37. He'd said to his disciples there, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And there Jesus is referring back to Isaiah 53, verse 12, that great prophecy about the suffering servant that though innocent himself, he would be treated as a criminal, as a transgressor, put to death alongside other criminals. And that verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 53 verse 12, not only mentions that he would be numbered with the transgressors, but as well as that, it goes on to say, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's no coincidence, is it? that in Luke 23, after mentioning the fact that Jesus was put to death alongside transgressors, Luke then mentions that Jesus made intercession for transgressors. Luke's showing us, isn't he, this prophecy, Isaiah 53 verse 12 in particular, finds its fulfillment in the death of Jesus. Then the next fulfillment of prophecy is seen in the fact that Luke tells us that people cast lots to divide Christ's garments. It's fulfilling the psalm that we sang at the start of our service this evening, Psalm 22, where David writes, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And then as well as that in verse 36, Luke mentions that the soldiers offered Jesus sour wine to drink. And this is fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 69 verse 21 where David writes, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And the list could go on, dozens and dozens of prophecies like this. But these examples are sufficient to prove the point that Luke is showing to us here, even at the cross. Even amidst Christ's humiliation, in his awful suffering, we also see God's sovereignty in the fulfillment of prophecy. It shows us that things are not out of hand. Still, God is in control. His perfect plans, his saving purposes, they're all coming together, just as he said they would. And indeed, a little later on, as they reflected back on these events... The early church in Jerusalem would pray to God saying, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And you see what the early church in Jerusalem had understood as they prayed that prayer they understood that God's sovereignty stands over all things even over the cross itself this is God's plan his saving purposes uh, coming together and of course if we know that God is still sovereign even in the awful suffering and cruel death of his own son then we can know for sure that whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in And whatever suffering we might pass through in this life, of whatever type it may be, that in the midst of that, God is still in control. He's still working his perfect plans and his saving purposes together 
for our good. Even when we just cannot fathom how or why. And then here's the, the third and the final thing that we should see in this passage of scripture. Uh, we should see Christ's mercy in his gracious words. See Christ's mercy in his gracious words. And you'll have noticed already in this portion of scripture, Jesus speaks on three different occasions. And on each of those occasions, his words are just filled with grace and mercy towards other people. So let's look at those three occasions when Jesus speaks in this passage. Firstly, notice how he warns of judgment. He warns of judgment. In verse 27, we're told that as Jesus was being led away to be crucified, a great multitude of people were following him. And that included some women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now, Luke isn't saying that these were genuine believers in Jesus, but they did at least feel some pity, some sympathy for Jesus and what he was going through. And remarkably, even in these circumstances, Jesus is thinking about the fate of others. He, he's concerned for them. And so in mercy, he, he warns of judgment. He turns to these women and he says to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Jesus is warning them about the judgment that's going to come against Jerusalem about 40 years in the future, in AD 70, when the Romans would come against Jerusalem and lay siege to it and destroy it, and thousands upon thousands of Jews would starve or be killed. And the reason that Jerusalem faced that was because of their rejection of Jesus, their promised Messiah, when he visited them. Now, just a few days earlier, Jesus had said as he rode into Jerusalem, He'd looked over the city and he'd said, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon, upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't realize, they didn't accept their Messiah when he came to visit them. And for that sin of rejecting their Messiah, Jerusalem would face this terrible judgment. And Jesus sums up the inevitability of that coming judgment against Jerusalem with this little proverb. He says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And what does that mean? Well, in that saying, the green wood represents Jesus. The dry wood represents the unbelieving Jews who rejected him. John Calvin explains it like this. He says, we know that dry wood is generally thrown into the fire first. But if what is moist and green be burned, much less shall the dry be ultimately spared. 
And we might paraphrase it by saying this. If Jesus, who is the green wood in whom there's life, was not spared from the judgment of God in going to the cross for his people, well, how much more will those who are dry wood, spiritually dead in their rejection of Jesus, face the judgment of God in the end? You see the point, don't you? The cross shows that the judgment of God against unbelievers is absolutely inevitable. If even Jesus faced the judgment of God as he went to the cross, well, what does that mean for those who are unrepentant? It shows that judgment is inevitable. And so see Christ's mercy in his gracious words as he lovingly warns these women of the inevitability of God's judgment against those who reject him. And still today, Christ's gracious word does the same thing, doesn't it? As his gospel goes out into the world, part of its message is to say to people uh, that there is a judgment coming and to warn them of the absolute inevitability of facing God's judgment if they reject Christ. And then also see the merciful and gracious words of Jesus as he prays for people to be forgiven. In verse 34, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, astoundingly he prays for those around him, uh, those who had crucified him, those who had condemned him, those different people who were hurling abuse at him. And he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now back in chapter 6 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus had taught his disciples, saying, Love your enemies, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And you see that here in the most extreme of circumstances imaginable, Jesus practices exactly what he had preached, praying for his enemies to find God's forgiveness. And just consider for a moment how wonderfully this prayer was answered by his father. It was answered in that just a little later on, the penitent thief found forgiveness. It was answered in the apparent conversion of the Roman centurion stood at the cross, who, when he saw how Jesus died, said, truly this man was the son of God. It was answered in the the rapid expansion of the early church in Jerusalem, with literally thousands of people in Jerusalem converted to faith in Jesus in the months following his death and resurrection. We see Christ's mercy in these gracious words as he prays for people, even his enemies, to find forgiveness for their sin. And still today, Jesus is interceding for his people that they be forgiven of all of their sin. The writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But maybe best of all, we see Christ's mercy in his gracious words to the penitent thief in that he promised him paradise. He promised him paradise. Now Luke doesn't tell us this, but we find out in the other gospel accounts that actually to start with, both of these criminals crucified next to Jesus were hurling abuse at him. Both of them were doing that. 
And yet at some point as he hung on the cross, one of them had this miraculous change of heart, even as he was hanging there. And look at how his heart was changed. Firstly, he began to fear God. He turned to the other criminal who was still railing at Jesus and he said to him, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And then he admitted that he himself was a guilty sinner before God, deserving condemnation. He said to the other criminal, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And then he acknowledged the innocence and perfection of Jesus. This man has done nothing wrong. And then last of all, he turned to Jesus in faith. He acknowledged him as king and he cried out to him for mercy. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I love J.C. Ryle's comment on this man's conversion. He says, his time was very short for giving proof of his conversion, but it was time well used. And he demonstrates for us, doesn't he, the only right way to, to come to Jesus. Firstly, to fear God and to acknowledge that you yourself are a guilty sinner before God, deserving condemnation. Acknowledging the, the innocence and the perfection of Jesus Christ. And then turning to him in faith. Acknowledging him as king. And crying out to him for mercy. I ask you, is that how you've come to Jesus? Uh, just like this man did. It is the only way to come to Jesus. And how will Jesus respond to this man? Would he say to him, well, maybe it's just a bit too late for someone like you. You've lived a terrible life and you've got no chance to make up for it now. It's all too late for you. Well, no, that's, of course, not what Jesus says to this man. Jesus will never say that to anyone who turns to him in repentance and faith. No matter, no matter how late in life they might do so and no matter what sins they might have committed in that life. And once again, see Christ's mercy in his gracious words. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And very likely when the penitent thief asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom, he was thinking about the end of the age, when Jesus returns, whenever that will be. But Jesus' response shows him that there is, in fact, a, a much more immediate hope for this man. That very day, that very day, he would be with Jesus in paradise. That is how close glory is for the Christian. It's never more than just one moment the other side of your final breath. That's all. That's how close glory is for the Christian. And above everything else, I hope you see Christ's beautiful mercy in his gracious words in this passage. Uh, that even as he goes to the cross, he lovingly warns of judgment. And he prays that even his enemies find forgiveness. 
and to all those who come to him in repentance and faith like this thief did. He promises paradise. Little did this thief know that as he confessed his sin and trusted in Christ, that his sin was being punished just a few yards away, once and for all, so that for him there was no condemnation. I love how someone has described this event. He writes, True repentance never comes too late. Two malefactors were crucified with our Lord. In the closing hours of his criminal career, one of them repented. He confessed that he was deserving of crucifixion. And turning to the Saviour, he prayed, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus replied, Verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the wonderful gospel of our Lord Jesus and all that he suffered for us. And we see in these verses just a, a glimpse of his humiliation and his awful suffering as he went to the cross, as he was abused by those around him, as he suffered physically, and above and beyond all of that, suffered the curse of God against our sin. Father, we thank you for all that Jesus has done for us. Father, we thank you as we read these verses that we see time and again your sovereignty at work, even in these circumstances. This was all according to your perfect plan. Your saving purposes were coming together. And we thank you, therefore, that whatever we go through in this life, whatever difficult days we pass through, whatever suffering comes our way, we know that you are a God who is in control working all things together for our good. Help us to trust you even in the dark days. And we thank you for the mercy of Christ, which is just so evident in his gracious words throughout this passage, how he warns of judgment, how he prays even for his enemies that they be forgiven, and how he promises paradise, heaven, glory, for all those who, like the penitent thief, uh, turn to him in faith. Father, if any here have not yet done so, would you work graciously in their hearts that they too might turn to Christ and trust in him. And we pray, uh, Father, for ourselves, uh, that trusting in Christ, that we might be filled with assurance of the glory that awaits, that glory is never more than one moment, the other side of our final breath. We thank you uh, for how close that is and how secure it is because it's all in Christ. In his name, we pray these things. Amen.